John chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. The subject we, uh, we address today, you can't really address it. The subject of pain, the subject of suffering, you can't really address it either with elation or with sorrow, but with a kind of quiet power, with a kind of reflective confidence. There's a, there's a little girl, a, a girl in one of my son's classes in his school who just died of leukemia after the neighborhood had raised thousands of dollars because their family didn't have insurance so that she could have a bone marrow transplant. And they had raised all the money, and yet the timing was wrong because she, by that time, at a certain point, she was too weak to receive it. And she just recently died. And the children say, why her? A little boy is, is sitting at his table in the Bronx, and a stray bullet comes through and kills him. And he's sitting at his table by a Christmas tree. And everybody says, why him? Or uh, a, a man <clears throat> that I read of in the newspaper some years ago, a man backs his car out of the garage, runs over his five-year-old girl, who jumps up for a moment, runs around saying, Daddy, Daddy, why, and collapses and dies. And that's the question. Daddy, Daddy, why? That, that's, that, it, that's it. The big why. The problem of pain. If God is so good, why does he allow it? If God is so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? That's the problem. One of the ways you know you've moved from being a kid to being an adult is this. One day you see the graffiti. Haven't you seen this graffiti? Life is hard, then you die. You've seen that? And one day you walk along and you see the graffiti and you suddenly realize that's not bleak and that's not pessimistic. That's just the way it is. And you know you've grown up because you've gotten rid of your silly, romantic ideals that say, those things happen to other people, they don't happen to me. And yet on that day, you become a cynic, a little part of you dies, a part of you that always hoped for a life of joy and love. So the question comes this way. Are you still a romantic idealist, or have you grown up and now you're a cynic? And is that the only two alternatives we have? The answer of the Bible is no. There's another way to go. Not romanticism and idealism, not cynicism and bitterness, 
The other way is called Christianity. Because a Christian who's thinking straight is neither a romantic or a cynic. What's interesting about this particular passage is that the disciples are giving Jesus the big why. They just walk by a man who's born blind. He's blind from birth. And what do they say? Essentially, they're saying, why? Why is this man suffering? Why? And Jesus gives us the answer. Here's the, here's the, <clears throat> the king of the cosmos giving us the answer to suffering. And we'll see. It's not a simple answer. It's not a pat answer at all. But uh, it's absolutely critical that we understand it. And the best way for us to understand these verses is to first of all notice the false understandings of suffering that are premised in the question. The question is, Rabbi, why is this man suffering? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's two false understandings of suffering that are embedded in there, and Jesus wipes them away because he says, neither And then he goes on and gives us his own understanding, his own right understanding of suffering, in which he says, Neither, but this happens so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. So first of all, we have the two two false views of suffering and the right one. All right, let's just look at those. And that will prepare us to come to the table. Because the Lord's Supper is all about suffering. It's all about somebody... The only person in history, nobody in this room, the only person in history who ever suffered unjustly, who didn't deserve any kind of trouble at all, the one person who looked like he was going down to an absolute defeat, and yet because he handled his suffering in an obedient and faithful way, his suffering became the ultimate display case of the work of God. And that's our pattern. The false views and the true. The two false views, they come by real quickly. Rabbi, was it this man who sinned or was it his parents who sinned that he was born blind? And the two views I'm going to call the anger track and the guilt track. Two ways to handle suffering, two ways to respond to suffering, two ways to understand suffering that are wrong. The anger track and the guilt track. Now the anger track goes this way. Was it his parents who did it to him? The anger track is... If I'm hurting, if I'm suffering, somebody out there is to blame. I've got to find a scapegoat. I've got to find somebody to be angry at. Uh, now, actually, parents are one of the reasons. Uh, par- today, in the last 10 years, it has been extremely in vogue to blame your parents for all your problems. So this is quite up to date. Why is this man the mess he is? Was it his parents' sin? Some people say, sure, that's it. I'll blame my parents for my problem. Another approach of scapegoating, another variation on the anger track, is to blame God. God, why is my life this way? I see a lot of other people out there far less deserving than me, and yet things are going better for them than for me. By the way, some of it, sometimes the anger track gets worse when you become a Christian. It doesn't get better, it gets worse, because you say, I've given myself to him, and th- I'm worse off than I used to be. I've made all these commitments to him, and things are going worse. That's the anger track. Another, another version of the anger track, which is scary, but which is done all the time in New York, and that is to blame all your problems on a, another particular group of people. A class of people, a group of people. The reason that we're having the suffering problems we're having is because of them. Let's get them. Anger track. Then, you, on the other hand, you have the guilt track. 
the disciples say, maybe this man was born blind because he sinned. Now, that's a, you know, how, how could you be, be born blind because you sinned? Probably, he's saying, did God look forward in the, into the future and foresee that this man would be a selfish or a sinful man and therefore struck him with blindness as a punishment for his sin? Is this man a mess because, of, because it, it's his fault? That's the guilt track. The guilt track says... It doesn't look outside for blame. The guilt track looks inside. The guilt track says, I'm suffering. It must be my fault. I must be a bad person. I must be an awful person. Otherwise, my life would be going better. Now, by the way, the anger track and the guilt track in some situations can actually be combined. And then it's really lethal. Uh, you know, sometimes the children of divorce combine the two. Studies show that sometimes children will not only be mad at one or both of the parents for the divorce, but at the same time they'll be sure that they caused it somehow. It's my fault. There must be something wrong with me. And when those two responses to suffering come together, the, the combination is tremendously lethal. Uh, one more footnote. Some people that you can call conservative maybe take the guilt track and turn it into an ideology. Successful people love to preach that success comes completely through individual effort. Uh, successful and happy people always like to preach that if you want to be happy, you can be. And therefore, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of person that turns the guilt track into an ideology. They say, look at me. If, you, if you're sick, you don't have faith. You're not, you're not taking care of yourself. If you're poor, it's because you're not working hard. If you've got problems, it's because you've you got to pull yourself up. See, there's a conservative ideology that takes the, the guilt track and lays it on people everywhere. But there's actually a liberal ideology that takes the anger track and turns that into a way of looking at life. The liberal ideology says, you're all victims. If you're suffering, there's somebody to blame. Uh, this particular approach says that anger over your victimization is what makes you an authentic human being. And therefore, you've got to find whoever it is and sue the pants off them. You've got to find whoever it is and, and get them. But Jesus Christ reacts to both the guilt track and the anger track. Both the idea that says, if, if I'm suffering, it's somebody's fault out there, I'm going to be angry. Or if I'm suffering, it must be because I'm guilty. And Jesus Christ says, neither. Rabbi, did this man sin or did his parents sin? Is it his fault or is it somebody else's fault? And Jesus says, neither. You know, you know Christians are always, always being accused of pat answers and simplistic answers. And that's just, when you read the Bible, you see it's not the case. Jesus Christ gets rid of the world's answers to suffering because they're too simple. For example, uh, when he says neither, he is, he, is, he is tracking with his answer in Luke 13. In Luke chapter 13, the same issue comes up. Somebody says, Jesus, have you heard about the tower that fell, on, on, that fell down in another town and killed a bunch of people? Horrible tragedy. A tower fell on a group of people. Now, Jesus, they asked him, were those people worse sinners than others? Is that why the tower fell on them? Same question. What does Jesus say? He says, no, but repent lest ye likewise perish. A radical turning of the tables. Jesus Christ says, no, of course there weren't worse sinners than you. Therefore, you should be very glad that there's no towers falling on you and maybe you better look up. 
Jesus Christ does what you call, what people today call presuppositional analysis. That means Jesus is always making you look at the unexamined, unstated premises in your question. See, for example, he comes and he says, when you ask, why does God allow all this evil and suffering? There is an unexamined premise behind that question. I, I always have to say this myself, and I got the idea from Jesus. He's in Luke 13, and here, when people say, why does God allow suffering? Jesus is saying this. He says, listen, friends, don't you see what you're assuming is that God owes you a comfortable life? It wouldn't be a problem. You wouldn't be answering that, asking that question unless you believe God owed you a comfortable life. And think about it. Examine that premise. Here you have a God who has created you and who sustains you and upholds your life every second, all the time. And here you have a God, therefore, that you owe it to him to love him and serve him and obey him and know him. Absolutely. Joyfully. With eager eager, uh, willingness. uh, With uh, joyful revelry. That's, That's what you owe him. And yet... Every day of your life, you have resented his interference. You have rejected his loving authority over your life. You have continually decided that you were wiser than he was and you resented his rules whenever they went against your desires or what you thought was practical to you. He has given you hundreds of chances to give yourself to him. And again and again and again, you've thwarted his loving authority. And you tell me, when he, you owe him everything and you've given him so little that now he owes you, he has an obligation to follow along after you and make sure your life is comfortable? What Jesus Christ is saying is that the relationship of sinful behavior to suffering is a complex one. It is not something that you can simply reduce to the anger track, somebody did it to me, or the guilt track, I... It must be all my fault. The Bible actually says this, and this is absolutely critical. You can use it immediately. Some of you need to use this in your life. The Bible says that all suffering comes from sin in general, but not from sin in particular. The Bible says that suffering comes from sin in general, but never from sin in particular. For example, on the one hand, the Bible says that the reason there's suffering in the world... We're told this in Genesis 3. The reason they're suffering and pain is because of the sin of human beings. In Genesis 3, we're told that God had originally invented mankind to be the central cog in the universe. God invented us to be under him, but over nature. We're supposed to rule over nature like his prime minister, like his vice regents. We were the middle cog... Now, if you have a middle cog that's perfectly meshed in a beautiful clock, and that middle cog decides that it wants to come up higher than where it's really supposed to be positioned, what will happen? There'll be an awful crunching and grinding and groaning, and the clock will never work right again. If if, If the hands turn at all, the hands will turn too slowly, or they might even turn backwards. You know how that works. And what God tells us in Genesis 3, when when. Adam and Eve decided to go their own way. When humankind decided to be their own masters, God says, now nature will not ever work again properly. It will now be subject to disease and to decay and to death and to natural disasters. And because, God says, every human being 
because you've all decided to center on yourself and live self-centered lives, you'll be constantly coming into conflict with each other. And therefore, you see, there's some evil, like the little boy killed with a bullet in the Bronx, which is so clearly human evil. But there's also things like cyclones and cancer, which is so clearly natural evil. Yet God says it's all roots. It's not my design. It's not the way in which I designed the world to go. It's all the result of sin in general. But the Bible then says that an individual incident of suffering is not proportional or caused by sin in particular. One of the most interesting, interesting places where you see this balance is the book of Job. God says to, uh, you know, Job in the Old Testament receives all kinds of suffering in his life. And at the, during the book, this is what happens. Job says, God, I'm angry at you. He takes the anger track. He says, I've lived a good life. There's no reason why I deserve suffering at all. And Job's friends, Ella, uh, who are Job's friends? Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Job's friends take the guilt track. They say, God, they say, God wouldn't be punishing you unless you were very, you'd done something wrong. Look at us. We have healthy lives. We've got money. We've got our families. We have our health. And we're living righteously, so you must be sinning. When God shows up at the end, what does he do? He, he slams both of them. He slams the anger track and he slams the guilt track. On the one hand, he slams the anger track, as we've just seen, because, he says, never, ever, ever say that you don't deserve suffering. All the suffering that's in this world is not here by my design. This world doesn't work properly. Your lives don't work properly. Your hearts don't work properly. Your society doesn't work properly because of your own self-centeredness. That's not my design. And don't ever, ever, ever say that you don't deserve suffering. Look up, who knows, if a tower is falling on you. But on the other hand, he turns to Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, the ones who are saying, Job, you must be a sinner. And he blasts, them even, he blasts them even worse. Because the Bible teaches that sin, that God is not up in heaven, counting our sins and saying, ah, oh, this person sinned three times today. I'm going to send three pieces of suffering into their lives. The reason that that's ridiculous is if God was really paying us back for our sin with suffering nobody would be left. And the Christian knows this. Romans 8, 1. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A Christian sits there and says, if there's suffering in my life, it's not because God's punishing me, because all my punishment fell unto Jesus. All of it. And God would never take two payments for one debt. God is not going to punish Jesus for my sin, then punish me. A Christian is somebody who sits down. You see the application? A Christian is somebody who, on the one hand, says, suffering is in this world because of sin in general. I can never, ever, ever feel sorry for myself and decide I don't deserve suffering. But on the other hand, I know that if there's suffering in my life, it's not because he's not punishing me for my sin. There's a reason for it. There's a purpose for it. He's teaching me in it, but I realize he's with me in it. He hates the suffering. He's unhappy with the pain. It's not his design. Do you see the balance? If you forget that suffering is caused by sin in general, the self-pity and the anger will kill you, and the anger track will eat you up. But if you forget, on the other hand, that God does not punish us for our sins through suffering, but he punishes Jesus for our sins, if you forget that, the guilt track will eat you up. 
There's the balance. No anger, no guilt. Now, Jesus Christ has just swept away the false views by saying, neither. The anger and the guilt are too simple. The anger says, nobody deserves suffering. It's all unfair. The guilt says, I deserve suffering. It's because I'm a bad person. And Jesus Christ says, neither. Because the relationship of sin to suffering is too complex. The reality is that it's there because of suffering and sin in general, but not because of sin in particular. You see, the, the fact is the Christian understanding is more nuanced. It's more sophisticated. It's more multidimensional. It's less pat. It's less simplistic. But now Jesus turns around in a positive way and he says, all right, then why does suffering come into our lives? We've already hinted at it when we said suffering comes into our lives, it can't be for punishment. Why does it come in? And Jesus says, here's the answer. So that the work of God may be displayed in his life. So that the work of God may be displayed in his life. And here's the view of Jesus Here's the view of suffering that Jesus gives us. Number one, suffering is governed by God's will. So that. And number two, all suffering is there to display and to further the redemptive work of God in our lives. Wait, take a look first of all at the word so that. We don't have much time here and I want to get you ready for the table. So that. See, Jesus Christ says, neither... He was born blind so that. There's always intent. Or the way I've read it, suffering is never for nothing. That little two words, so that, means suffering is never senseless. Never. Now, you have to be careful here. I said, very importantly, you have the verses like Lamentations 3, where it says, God hates our affliction. He, he's sad with us in our affliction. He didn't, he didn't design for, for the world to be full of pain. But on the other hand, you have Romans 8.28 that says all things work together for good to them that love God. You have Ephesians 1.10 that says everything happens according to the counsel of his will. Pain was not God's design, and yet all pain and suffering in your life is governed by God's will. That means he controls what's there. It means he monitors it. It means he channels it. It means that a Christian can sit down and say, I'm suffering today and God is mad about that. He has done something in history to deal with suffering, to eradicate it forever. And yet, I also know his will governs the pain that's in my life today. I know it's not for nothing. It's so that there is a purpose for it. There's an appointment. There's an agenda. And it's a loving agenda. That's the reason why when, you know, you take a look at, at Joseph, who looked like he went through senseless suffering. He was sold into slavery by his, his brothers. Uh, then uh, Potiphar's wife lied about him and said that he was, wanted, he was trying to rape her. And he was put into prison. Years and years of senseless suffering. But in the end, it was also that he could be in a position to save his brothers and sisters and his father from famine. You know the story, and in Genesis 50, what does Joseph say? When his brothers come together, and they are sure that he's going to, he's going to pay them back for all they did, and what, is jo- what does Joseph say? He says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. What is he saying? He's saying, the evil, I don't blame God for it all. I blame you for it, and yet, God overruled it. He governed it. Suffering, a Christian understanding of suffering 
is that though God does not want suffering, though the God does, that was not in his original design, yet God governs everything. And therefore, suffering is never for nothing. Suffering is always so that. And then secondly, suffering is always a way for God's work to go on in your life. Now, how does that happen? It happens like this. When Jesus uses the word work, he is talking about something very specific. His, the word work, when he uses his word work, he's talking about his work of redemption. In John chapter 17, at just before he's about to die, he says, Lord, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And when he's on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. That's the work. Now, what is the work of redemption? The word redeem means to buy back out of slavery. The word redeem literally means to pay the ransom to a kidnapper. And Jesus, when he talks about redeeming you, I don't know what you think, but here's what I think now. I don't know how you think of it. I think of it this way. I am in bondage to things that keep me from being what I want to be, what I need to be, what I should be. What should I be? I should be in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I was, we talked about this last week, I was built to have his spiritual DNA in me, his nature in me. I was built to be a person like him with his nature in me. I was built to be a person of, of his glory and of his wisdom and of his love and of his power and of his, his joy and of his, his majesty. That's the kind of person I was supposed to be. Well, what's holding me down? It's that stupid and inveterate self-centeredness. It's that desire to be my own savior and my own master. And Jesus says, it's only through suffering that I can buy you back out of the bondage. When trouble comes into my life, for example, only when trouble comes into my life do I really begin to see the things that are binding me. Only do I see the things that are binding me. Here's an example. I've seen this happen with couples. Here's a, here's a married couple. And when there's money troubles, the wife seems to be the strong one. And she says, oh, dear, don't worry, it'll work out. You know, she's worried, but he's collapsed. But when there's child problems, he seems to be the strong one. He says, oh, dear, don't worry, it'll work out. See, he's worried, but she's collapsed. Why? Because, you see, you tend to suffer when those things which you have made your world are in jeopardy. You, t you suffer when the things that you have based your life on, the things, therefore, that bind you, the things that really have kept are keeping you down, the things that are driving you, that are binding you, when those things are in jeopardy, that's when you feel that your life is coming apart. And so, friends, the Christian approach, to if you want the work of God to go forward in your life, when problems happen, don't say, why am I suffering? Instead say, why am I suffering? Why is this suffering to me? Why is it that other people can handle this better than me? Ask yourself that. If you, don't, if you really want to grow, if you want to see the work of God develop in you, if you want to see yourself progress, don't say, why am I suffering? Say, why am I suffering? Why is this so bad to me? Have I based my life on it? Is this something that I've got to have? Have I been so bound and so enslaved by this thing? I will not be this way. That's the way you're supposed to go at it. Does that seem then, does it seem cruel to you that God brings trouble into your life 
to show you these things? Does it seem cruel? The answer is no. Because anything that you build your life on except God is a sandcastle and the tide must, must, must come in. Anything you build your life on except God is a tree and every tree in the forest must, must, must come down. You have to build your life on the rock. And how will this mean, how will this lead to the work of God being displayed in this way? When you've gone through suffering, when you've gone through trouble, and you've done it the way we're talking about, understanding hmm, where suffering comes from, not the anger track and not the guilt track, when you go about it saying, I want, to, I want to learn from this. I want to become like Christ in this. When you go about it trusting Him and obedient to Him, then what happens is you will find yourself really being changed and you will become a far more compassionate person. You will go, for example, and you'll notice other people who are hurting. You'll pick up the signals and you'll find them faster. And when you talk with them, they will be amazed because you will just love them. You will not cause them or encourage them to be angry. And you will not lay any guilt on them. They will be astonished because you just love them without any guilt or anger of your own. And and you'll say to them, hey, because Jesus suffered for me, therefore I don't have to deny pain because I know it's real. But I also don't have to feel guilty because he paid it all. And I don't have to be angry. Because, you see, he's teaching me in this and he's going to eventually eradicate it. And besides that, he's never given me what I deserve. And this approach to Christianity, this approach to suffering, will so change you so there's no guilt or no anger, but simply love and quiet power. It'll turn you into a shepherd. It'll develop a shepherd heart, and people will make beelines to you. And even if you don't say anything for a long time until they ask you about where your strength comes from, they will know it's there. And the work of God will be displayed. And just as the furnace turns the gold into something beautiful, so... the trial turns the Christian into something beautiful. Do you understand this? This blind man, in order to be healed, you notice what Jesus did? He, what he does, you know, a blind person sees some light at least. What Jesus did was he spit on the ground, put clay on his eyes, which would have, which would have done what? Made him worse. He would have seen even less. And then told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and the man had to obey God in the dark. Friends, sometimes the only way to handle your suffering is to simply obey in the dark. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't look like what Jesus is doing is making things better. It may look like it's making things worse. And yet you know this. Look on the cross and you'll see Jesus Christ handled his suffering by saying, not my will but thine be done, and it turned into a triumph. If you handle your suffering in this way, you will only die to rise. You know how the hymn goes? Hmm? Made like him, like him we rise. Alleluia. Ours, the cross, the graves, the skies. And that means the Christian says, come on crosses, come on graves. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. If you accept what Jesus Christ has said, and if you accept him as your Savior and Lord, 
then there's a way out. Otherwise, you'll just be a, a romantic on a collision course with reality or a cynic and your humanity is ebbing away. You'll either be mad at yourself or you'll be mad at the world when you suffer. Or else you can say, come on crosses, come on graves. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to the table, we have a tremendous challenge. We have to come and see that we don't only give you our good things and our talents, but we have to give you our bad things and our troubles. It means that we have to, we have to trust you in them. We have to eschew the anger and self-pity. We have to forsake the sense of guilt and, and, uh, and self-hatred. Instead, we have to come and say, I am under this for your time, and I am under this to learn of you, and I'm under this to, to, to remove the things in my life that have become too important to me. And I'm under this to learn to die to myself and to rise into a whole new world. We pray, Father, that you would help us to do it now as we look upon these emblems of your son's death, the defeat that was really a triumph, the sickness that was really a healing, the, the apparent bondage that was really an escape. And we know that if we handle our own trouble in the same way, then the doors of our prisons will fly open and we will find newness of life. Now be with us as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.